We have one final opportunity to hear from our speakers, and we've just been blessed by your presence, and so please help me welcome back Father Michael and Tom. It's been great to be with you. Um, we are actually, they want to hear back from feedback. Actually, Ed, this is Ed. Ed raises his hand right here. <laughs> uh, we appreciate feedback, too, just to know uh, your thoughts. Um, also, there's ways we can continue to serve you. Uh, we want to be able to do that. Um, so we have a lot of, just some of the different resources we have that we, we do. Uh, we obviously have books. Um, I know they sold out from the Mustard Seed. They're still taking orders if you want to order any of the books there. So there's three books. There's Rebuilt, which is the original book. There is... Um, Tools for Rebuilding, which is kind of more tactical, little practical things to help you, and Rebuilding Your Message, which is the um, uh, book on preaching and teaching communication that we based mo most, most of our talk on earlier. Uh, other thing we've come out with recently is a Rebuilt Field Guide, so that helps serve the other book. So it's a, a, the Field Guide is something you can take to your team and bring together your parish council, your key leaders and volunteers, and it just helps you work through some of the things that we wrote about and Rebuilt, some things we talked to you about you talked with to, about to you over the last couple of days. So uh, that's another resource. The last thing we, we do have is, uh, again, this Rebuilt Parish Association. Um, and so, uh, again, Ed's here. Uh, if, you ever want, if you want to talk to him more about that, again, about really helping you, especially the communication in your church and being a resource to help you with that. So, um, again, our, our, our kind of vision really is just we want to help other churches. We've seen God bless some things. In our, um, in our parish, and uh, we want to just share that. And so any way we can serve you, we'd be happy to do that. So kind of um, filling out the surveys is a way to help us help you and also to help other people in the future. So um, thanks again for any of your input. So as you guys are filling that out, um, again, obviously we've talked about kind of these three key strategies that we've looked at. Um, uh, focusing on unchurched people, prioritizing the weekend experience, and then challenging church people to move. We've had a chance to look at, again, our communication in our church. Uh, so today, again, hopefully this, this last session, we'll just look at a couple of action steps to take away. And hope you probably already have a bunch of action steps, but a couple other things that, to keep in mind, maybe things, next steps you can take. And so to do that, we want to look at a story from uh, Scripture and give you some practical action steps. I'll turn it over to Father Michael. Our story begins around the year 450 B.C. We find ourselves at the court of the most powerful man in the world, Artaxerxes, the king of Persia. And there in the king's court, we're introduced to a man named Nehemiah. Nehemiah holds high position in the court <coughs> of the king. Certainly, to achieve this position, Nehemiah must have been a man of great intellect and education, refinement and sophistication. One other thing you should know about Nehemiah, he was a Jew. The book of Nehemiah is his memoir, and towards the beginning of the book, he tells us this. One of my brothers came from Judah. I asked them, about the Jews and about Jerusalem. They answered me, the wall of Jerusalem has been breached. Its gates gutted by fire. When I heard this report, I began to weep, fasting and praying before the God of heaven. Nehemiah learns that even though some of the Jewish people had returned to Jerusalem for some time at that point, the walls around the city had, had yet to be rebuilt after their destructions by the Babylonians at the beginning of the exile. Walls were an important feature in any city. They provided safety and security. They established sovereignty and integrity. A city couldn't really claim to be a city without walls. So the lack of city walls would have been disturbing to any pious Jew. But it seems here to shake Nehemiah to his core. You know, when it comes to being change agents, which is really what we're talking about in terms 
of our leadership at the parish level. When it comes to being change agents, we can learn a lot from Nehemiah. First thing we can learn from Nehemiah is the importance of heart and allowing our heart to be moved by the problems we face in our parishes. Nehemiah could have just heard about the broken walls of Jerusalem and dismissed it as somebody else's problem, but he doesn't. A situation changes when somebody takes responsibility for something that's not their responsibility. That's called leadership. When somebody takes responsibility for something that's not their responsibility, that's called leadership. Let it bother you that kids in our culture don't like church and don't want to come. Let it bother you that families are breaking apart because they don't hear and hold the Word of God. Let it bother you that high school and college students are making bad choices because they don't have a faith community they can rely on. That feeling will help fuel change. Notice then what Nehemiah does next. He brings the problem to God in prayer and fasting. Nehemiah is bothered by this problem. He has a burden on his heart for the broken walls of Jerusalem. But Nehemiah has no authority to do anything about it at all. He didn't have authority, but he had access to the one who had authority. First and foremost, he had access to the God of heaven and earth, and he used that access. He prayed to the Lord for favor to go before the king and be given permission by him to rebuild. You know, in traveling across the country and talking to so many different parishes and dioceses, Tom and I have received the question all the time, I read your book, I want to rebuild, I want to make changes, but how do I get started? How do I get my pastor on board? And sometimes in the very same session, a pastor will approach us and say, how do I get my staff on board? And sometimes in the very same session, the pastor and the parish staff will come along and say, how do we get our parish leaders on board? How do we get our parish council on board? How do we get our leaders on board? Maybe this is a question you came to this conference with. Well, Nehemiah is a great guy if you're in that situation because once his heart broke for the city of Jerusalem, he didn't stay focused on what he didn't have. Instead, he focused on what he did have. He had access to the Lord of heaven and earth, and he used that access to pray for favor before the king. Once admitted to the king's presence, we read, the king asked me, why do you look so sad? It was illegal to be sad before the king. You were supposed to be thrilled to be in the king's presence. Nehemiah risked not only his job, but his life, appearing in this questionable way before the king. He goes on, how could I not look sad when the city where my ancestors are buried lies in ruins. The king asked me, what is it then that you wish? I prayed to the God of heaven and then answered, send me to Jerusalem that I may rebuild. If you want to make any kind of change in your parish, like Nehemiah, you're eventually going to have to take a risk. The status quo doesn't change unless and until you're willing to take a risk. Nehemiah takes a risk in going before the queen, it's before the king. It's not a reckless risk, it's a calculated, strategic, prayerful one. Some of you are at this stage in the change process. You've been doing some behind-the-scenes work, maybe you've been having some planning session, but but now it's time to step, step forward, to take a risk. It's time to launch that ministry, start that campaign, share your new program 
with the congregation. It's a risk. But if that change is on your heart, you've got to take it. Nehemiah made a very bold request, one that would not necessarily have been welcomed by the king. It's a bold request and a selfless one, too, since Nehemiah is willing to give up his comfortable position for a project that would require a great deal of sacrifice on his part. Nehemiah takes the risk, and he wins the king's support, and he's good to go. And the rest of the story is smooth sailing. Right? Not right. When Nehemiah arrived in Jerusalem, the situation is worse, far worse than was advertised. He tells us Jerusalem lies in ruins, utter ruins. Its gates have been gutted by fire. The situation could easily have been overwhelming. How often does that happen? Maybe that's happened to you in your parish. You came to your parish as pastor or youth minister or administrator. You step forward as a super volunteer to make things happen. And you thought, of course, maybe there was some problem or some particular problem, but, but nothing you couldn't handle. Basically, this was a plum parish. That's what we thought about our parish when we got there. And that's what we were told by a lot of people. And boy, oh boy, were we wrong. For us, we weren't only overwhelmed by the problems we encountered, but also by the people that we encountered and some of the tenuous hold on faith, the lack of commitment that many of our regulars seemed to demonstrate. It was just overwhelming to us. We just wanted to give up before we started, and that's a natural feeling. Nehemiah felt that feeling too, but he doesn't allow himself to get stuck in it. He doesn't allow himself to become overwhelmed. Instead, he determines to survey the situation and get to know the full extent of the work to be done. Then, He calculated his assets in approaching the project. Not what he didn't have, but what he did have. If you want to change your parish, if you want to be change agents, it doesn't do any good to focus on what you don't have. I know because that was my experience. When I first came to my parish, I was so focused on what I didn't have. I was sort of stuck there. I compared myself to other parishes in the area. I compulsively checked their websites and their bulletins, and I developed a heart full of jealousy for everything they had that I didn't. And I I felt like I didn't have a lot. I didn't have a staff, not really. I didn't have any kind of decent music. I didn't have any money. I didn't have a pretty church. I had an ugly church. That's the temptation you want to avoid, because it won't get you anywhere, at least not anywhere good. And it could eventually create problems for you. Looking back, I can see how I made bad decisions season after season, because I was focused on what I didn't have. Nehemiah avoided that temptation. He also wisely decided to take the massive project and break it down into a series of small projects. And then he recruited teams to undertake each of those projects. I would very much encourage you to do that. You've heard very many things from us in the the past sessions. And some people have even said to us, this is overwhelming, or where do I get started? You take the project and you break it down into its smallest constitutive pieces. And then you tackle one of those pieces. And then the next one. You do it piece by piece. That's how Nehemiah built the wall. Next, he motivated his workers to get started. He says, I explained to them how God has shown his gracious favor to me. And they replied, 
let us begin building. And they undertook the work with enthusiasm and vigor. This is a huge point. Nehemiah explained to the people that God had already been gracious to him, that God was already on board leading the, and blessing this project. He's asking the people to get on board a winning proposition, one that already had momentum, and thus they're inspired to, to join him. Don't attempt to get people on board with your rebuilding. Don't try to motivate them from a position of neediness. Inspire them instead, because people want to be a part of a vision. So far, so good. But not everybody was happy. Not everybody was happy that the Jews were rebuilding their city. And even while they looked down on them, the Persians, their sort of occupiers and, and enemies, saw the Jews as potential risks. Though Nehemiah's plan was, was simple and, and peaceful, it wasn't going to hurt or threaten anyone. In fact, it was going to do a great deal of good for a great many people. The Persian governor of the territory, a man the Bible tells us was named Sanblad, became jealous and threatened by Nehemiah, so much so that he invented a story to accuse Nehemiah of treason and derail his plans. Nehemiah tells us, Sanblad sent me the same message by one of his servants. Among the nations it has been reported that you and the Jews are planning a rebellion because you are rebuilding the wall. Sanbat says to Nehemiah, essentially, people are talking. People are talking about you. They're saying things about you. They're saying you're going to overthrow the king. This is an important point. Criticism and conflict often come when we start making progress toward a goal. Critics will say things to distract us from our efforts or dissuade others from getting on board. And it always takes us by surprise. We never see it coming, but it's part of the process. And sometimes, sometimes we should see it coming. Jesus had his critics the Sadducees, the Pharisees, and his critics constantly battled him and spoke ill of him and gossiped about him. They said that he was a glutton and a drunkard. They questioned his companions and his family of origins. Don't be surprised or taken off guard by criticism and conflict. It is absolutely a part of the deal if you want to make, move forward and make an impact. So Sanballat makes these serious charges against Nehemiah that, if taken seriously, would have gotten Nehemiah into a lot of trouble. Here's Nehemiah's answer. Nothing of what you report is happening. Rather, it is the invention of your own mind. They're trying to intimidate us, thinking they will be discouraged from continuing the work, and it will never be complete. But instead, I redoubled my efforts. If you try to do anything, even good things, even great things, anything, you can be sure of this much, someone will oppose you. Now, if you don't want any criticism, do nothing, say nothing, and be nothing. But if you do something, if you stand for something, if you want to go somewhere, expect criticism. And if what you're doing is the right thing, and you, if you have come to that conviction in prayer, and with the very best advice of the very best people who actually care about you, then when the criticism comes, take it as confirmation that you're on the right track and use it. Like ne Nehemiah used it, as motivation to move forward. 
Instead of picking a fight, he and his people just redoubled their efforts to rebuild the walls. He redoubled his efforts. He used the criticism leveled against him as motivation to work harder. When criticism comes, don't let it slow you down. Use it as motivation. Nehemiah's courage was another of the many ways that he sacrificed himself for his rebuilding project. He sacrificed over and over again for the success of the mission. He led through service, and in doing so, he taught others about service. Nehemiah is what today we would call a servant leader. A servant leader is a leader who, first of all, is a servant. They lead through service. And in the process, they teach others about leadership. Anyway, there are other twists and turns to Nehemiah's story, but bottom line, Nehemiah's risk-taking, his leadership, and his hard work paid off. The community of Jerusalem rebuilt the walls around the city. But the effort actually achieved something more important. It restored the community's sense of identity and dignity and prepared the people to hear from the word of God. In a truly inspiring scene, we read, The whole people gathered as one, and they called upon Ezra the scribe to bring forth the book of the law of Moses, which the Lord had commanded for Israel. Ezra read out of the book from daybreak until midday in the presence of the people. When the priest Ezra read, led the people in prayer, read the scripture to them, it was the first time that they'd been publicly proclaimed in Jerusalem in decades. People returned to the Lord. People had never heard God's word, were, were changed and converted. Their lives were changed. When Ezra and Nehemiah told the story that was their story, it brought the people to tears. They weren't just hearing history. They were hearing about who they were. Nehemiah was restoring their vision, a vision not to live as exiles and slaves, but as sons and daughters of the living God. That's the beginning. That's the end of the story. And that's our story, too. We're about restoring vision to people who have lost sight of who they are. We're restoring vision of what God wants to do in our parishes. Rebuilding our parishes is the work of repairing and restoring vision. So we see from Nehemiah's story, first of all, he begins by developing a sense of urgency. And so, when it comes, I'm sorry, skip back there. When it comes to the, what we learn from Nehemiah, develop a sense of urgency. Uh, we can feel kind of an urgency because the influence of the church is slipping away in our culture. Um, we talked about in the, in the late, in the lady gathering about the Popeye moment. We have to have that moment of discontent. That's all I can stand, I can't stand no more. That for Nehemiah, his spirit broke when he heard about the walls around Jerusalem were not built and how they still had not been repaired. So what is that that needs to fuel your sense of urgency that we need to make the church matter in our communities and relevant to the people in our communities? You know, one, one story I use to kind of inspire me is um, I like to listen to comedians. I like to try to find clean comedians, which isn't all that easy. And some, one reason I like to listen to comedians is because I like to be a stand-up comic someday. I like to try that. And that's a problem because I'm not funny. Um, but I, I just like to listen to comedians. And one time I was listening to a guy named Tom Papa, and he was telling this story about how one day his daughter had asked him to go to church. And he, it was clear he had, he had never taken her to church before. And he's like, you know, I, I kind of understand. It's a kind of cool building in the town. And, you know, and she's about eight years old. Uh, and it's interesting to me because I, I have a nine-year-old daughter, but so right around the same age. Um, and he says, okay, he decides one day to bring her to church. 
And so he comes into the church, and the first thing he sees, she sees is the crucifix, and, the, and Jesus bloodied on the crucifix, and he said she's all of a sudden scared. And he's like, oh, I forgot. I never told her the story. And so she's kind of freaked out by the crucifix, and, and it's a kind of a dark church, so the next thing they know, the organ music starts playing, and it's kind of like a, a dirge, so now it's like, that's going on. And then the priest, he says, is in these long robes, and he's got thick black hair, and it's long hair. And, and he's, he's realizing she's beginning to look at this as almost like a horror house. Like, and she's getting more and more scared. And as she is having this reaction to church, she's like, you know, again, I forgot to tell her the story. And he starts laughing. And so Tom Pop says he, start, he starts laughing about, you know, her reaction. And then the people in the church, they start giving her dirty looks and giving him dirty looks because he's laughing. And Tom Papa says, I knew in that instant we had to get out of there. And so after a few minutes, he says, you know, I just grabbed her by and we ran out the door. We ran out into the sunshine and we started, we started laughing together. And I knew in an instant that we were closer to whoever's up there than we were in the church. And the whole audience started clapping. Isn't that amazing? People think they're closer to God out there than they are. In here. And then there's an eight-year-old girl who looks at the cross. And she doesn't see her Savior. She doesn't see the love of her Heavenly Father. She just sees horror. She doesn't see God's love. There's a girl who doesn't know the story. And that's because as a church, we're not reaching our community with the good news of Jesus Christ. That has to bother us. Bother us in the same way the wall is not being rebuilt around Jerusalem. Bother Nehemiah. So we need to develop a sense of urgency. And I don't know what those stories are for you. I don't know what breaks your heart. But you need to know what they are. Because as Father Michael said, that'll fuel us in making changes. And then we know from Nehemiah's story too that we need to get a vision of what could be and what should be. And we, we talked about this a bunch in the, um, in the breakout session. But the vision, Jeremiah, or Nehemiah had a very clear idea that he was going to rebuild the walls around Jerusalem. What's your vision? What's the way in which you know your church is moving towards being more effective in your community? What does that look like for you? And so we, we talked about this in the, um, in the breakout as well. G.K. Chesterton said this, the vision is always solid and reliable, the vision is always fact. It's reality that is often a fraud. In other words, the vision of what God wants to accomplish, the coming kingdom, we know that's the real reality. That the fallenness and broken of this world, we know that it is falling away. And really the kingdom that God is building, his coming kingdom that we believe in as Christians, we know that's really the reality. John Cotter in a book um, talking about leading change says the vision accomplishes three things. He says... It clarifies the general direction for change. Okay, sometimes I think vision is, again, overwhelming idea because I don't, I don't know exactly where I'm going, but the whole point is just it starts to get us the right direction. Okay, it's north. We're going to go north. That's where we're going. Where exactly north? Not sure, but it's, we know it's that way. That's okay. The vision helps clarify the general direction. It doesn't mean it figures everything out, but it knows the general direction. And it motivates people to take action in the right direction. Again, everything we're talking about eventually needs to lead to action. And if people know where they're going, they can take the right action. Because if they don't, if you know, if they don't know where they're going, they can do a whole bunch of wrong actions that don't lead anywhere. So they need to know the vision so they can take the right action. And then it says this. It coordinates the actions of different people, even thousands and hundreds of and even thousands and thousands of individuals. That, again, unless we have a clear vision about where we're going, we can't get everybody on the same team. We can't get everybody moving in the same direction. So vision gets not just a few people moving, but, again, hopefully dozens and hundreds and eventually thousands. So then, we say this. Next step that we need to do is, is gather a team. Look at that story of Nehemiah. Nehemiah went... When he went, he surveyed the walls first, but then he brought people together. He got people on board. 
Um, and when it comes to gathering, you know, trying to, to make an impact, we're not, God doesn't want us to do it alone. Right? God always surrounds people, surrounds his leaders with others. You know, Jesus had the apostles. Moses, we talked about in the, in the breakout, Moses had the elders of Israel, the leaders of Israel, and his brother, Aaron. You know, God, is, God wants us to not do it alone, but to gather a team of people. So how, who are the people you should be gathering? Well, we say this, that there's four people that we're, there's four kind of characteristics that we're looking for people to be on our team. You know, that we want people who have the right character, right? They're good people, that they're competent. They can get the job done. They know what, they, they bring a certain competency to being on the team. They're, they have chemistry. We, we like to work with them. We have a relationship with them. We want to be around them. It's very hard, right, to get to work and work hard and go through difficult things with people you don't like. And then culture. They fit the culture we're trying to build. Right? If, you could have a, if you're trying to build a culture that's open to people not coming to church, you can have somebody who's got a good character, who's very competent, who you like to get along with, you get along with, but if they just don't want to be part of that culture, they're just kind of too inward focused, you're not gonna, they're not going to be a good fit for the team. So look for people of the right character, right competency, right chemistry, and right culture. So that comes up right there. Number five, we say this. Beta test and embrace failure as part of the process. Yeah, I think as a church, we're too afraid of failure sometimes. And like letting failures define us and, and setbacks define us. You know, for us, we, the place where we, we tried out things was our 5.30 Sunday night mass. And we made a lot of mistakes. We did a lot of things wrong. But what we were able to do was to try things out differently in our church in just that one place. And it was, we could do it at 5.30 on Sunday nights because it was, it was essentially a new mass, a new program. So the stakeholders at the other masses, they didn't care how we did it, what we did there. Um, we, we did it with young people, Sunday night, 5.30 mass. And so young people are, are pretty flexible, pretty adaptable. And like everything, we started, so that's where we started putting screens. We have screens in our church. We started doing these homily series we talked about. It's where we started more contemporary praise and worship music. And we started doing all these things, and the 5.30 Sunday night mass just continued to grow. And in fact, it became the largest weekend mass, uh, weekend attendance, uh, largest weekend attendance of any of our masses. And so we were able to beta test and experiment and try new things. In his book, um, Great by Choice, Jim Collins says, fire bullets, then cannonballs. Fire bullets, then cannonballs. And he uses the analogy of an old, you know, uh, pirate ship when they had gun, you know, with the gunpowder. And he says that the pirate ship sees another enemy ship far away. And rather than putting all their gunpowder in a cannonball and missing the target, they put a little bit of gunpowder and shoot a bullet. And then when it's off target, they readjust. And they shoot another one. And then they get closer. And then as they get close, they see that the bullets are hitting the other ship. Then they fire the cannonballs. They use all their gunpowder. They invest all their resources in it. He says that's what great companies do, that's what great organizations do. They try little things, they beta test, and when they see something is working, then they invest all their resources in it. But that means we're going to have some failures, and that we have to embrace failure as part of the process. Um, I like what Seth Godin says about failure. He says this, if failure is not an option, then neither is success. There is no success without failures and setbacks. Here's what Winston Churchill said. He said this, failure is not final. Then there's this quote that I like. It says this. It says, you have to fail before you succeed. And that was said by a guy I worked with at Swiss Farm Store. Okay. So, um, so I, just real quick, in Delaware County, Pennsylvania, right outside Philadelphia, there's this thing called, there's drive-through milk stores. Okay. And it's like a drive through convenience store. And so I used to, I worked at the Swiss farm in uh, college for a couple of years. And there was a guy there who wanted to be an artist and I wanted to be a writer. So we would kind of talk about that. And he would just always say, you got to fail before you succeed. You got to fail before you succeed. And that, that's just stuck with me that, as, again, we are so afraid of failure at times that it means we don't try new things. But that failure, as Winston Churchill said, is not final. Failure is part of the process. 
There's a great book called Creativity, Inc. And a couple quotes from that. The guy says, we think of failure as a necessary evil, but it's not an evil at all. It's all about learning and growing. Here's what the director of Monsters, Inc. said this. He said, it wasn't until I finished directing Monsters, Inc. that I realized that failure is a healthy part of the process throughout the making of a film. I took it personally. I believe my mistakes were personal shortcomings. And if I were only a better director, I wouldn't make them. I know as a leader, I felt that all the time. If I was a better leader, I wouldn't make these mistakes. If I was a better leader, we wouldn't be in this position, right? If I, if I, if that my, one of my failures, I want to look at them and have them define me. But it's a great perspective to say, no, it's a healthy part of the process. That we learn from our failures. We try new things. If they're working, we keep investing more resources in them. And if it didn't work, we learn from the failure and we move on. Um, it's a great movie, Tintin. I guess I got a bunch of these quotes on failures. Uh, if you've ever seen the movie Tintin, or read the Tintin books, in the Tintin movie, um, Captain Haddock says, don't let your failures defeat you. 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 They're just part of the process. And we keep moving on. We keep growing. We keep learning. Don't let your failures defeat you. Next one is this. Um, change the weekend experience. Change the weekend experience. As we talked about yesterday, for most of the people in your pews, the, the whole church, <clears throat> their whole church experience is what they experience on the weekend. That's, what, that's all they know about the church. And what ultimately we're talking about here is changing the culture of a church. So if we never touch the weekend experience and how people, what people experience when they come to Mass on Sundays, then we really haven't changed anything about our church culture. So you need, what, what do you need to do to improve the weekend experience? We talked about you know, the music, the message, the ministers. And depending upon where you are in the process, upon where part, place what role you play in the staff or in volunteering the church, you have an opportunity to change the weekend experience. You know, if you're a musician, it's how do you make the music better, improve the music. How do you make, if you're a volunteer, how do you become, create more hospitality or more programs for children that, make, that make, make the church more welcoming for children? Pastors and priests, you guys are, are kind of actually had the lowest hanging fruit on this one. Because, you know, to get different ministers involved, that means moving a bunch of people. So to change the weekend, you've got to get a whole bunch of people on board of that. For musicians, again, musicians, got to get other people and other musicians on board. But the homily, it can be changed with one person deciding, I'm going to invest more time in this. And I'm going to start in, in investing my time and energy. I'm going to carve out more time of the week so that I can begin to paint a vision for people where our church is going. So... You need to change the weekend experience, whatever. If you don't change the weekend experience in your church, nothing's really going to change because that's where people experience the church. For many people, that's their whole experience of church. Next one would say this, step six. Consider running a church-wide campaign. So for us, in our story, what happened is this, that we began hearing new things hearing new ideas about how to do church, about getting a new vision of what our church could be. Uh, but when things did not really, things, the culture did not completely change until we decided, we, at certain strategic time, and this is a definite timing thing, we, we said our whole church is going to do something. So one advent we talked, we, Father Michael painted a vision of how we were going to be a church for unchurched people and how we wanted to reach the Tims in our community. And then you know what happened after that? Nothing. People just thought, okay, that's a message. I heard it. I can kind of move on with my life. But then the next year, um, Father Michael said, came back one day in the, in the summer before Christmas and said, I think we ought to move Christmas Eve to the fairgrounds, the Timonium Fairgrounds, which is about a mile up the road. And I remember he, he came to me and he's like, so our, our church, the previous year, we'd had all these problems at our church, just too many people coming and problems with technology, and we 
just there wasn't enough room for everybody. You know, Christmas Eve, that's the one time of year everyone wants to come to church. We are the church of the nativity. We ought to be hospitable during that time. And there's so many people coming that we couldn't be. And so Father Michael says, we've got to move up to the fairgrounds. And I remember I thought, this was the craziest idea I'd ever heard. But that Chris, then he, but he got me on board. And he got the rest of our staff on board. And then we went to some key leaders and volunteers. And we asked them. And you could tell, everyone had the same reaction. Like, that's the craziest thing I ever heard. But then we explained the reasons for it. That it was a calculated risk, as Father Michael talked about. Because we knew it wasn't working here. So why not try it somewhere else so people can invite friends and family members to come? And so we, we communicated to this widening, widening circle of people about the, this idea of a church-wide campaign, essentially to move Christmas Eve to the fairgrounds. And that was about 12 years ago. And now we go there every single year, and it continues to grow and grow. But it was a crucial part of our rebuilding process because it told people we're not just about words, we're about actions. We're going to do something. And then later, the next Lent, we did 40 Days of Purpose, which was a, the Rick Warren program from Purpose Driven Life. And again, we said we want the whole church on board. And the same way, we, we, created, we communicated to a widening circle of people. And again, it was an, a, a watershed event because, again, our, we were communicating to our church. We want everybody on board, but this is the direction we're going, and you can't escape it. You know, you, you can be here, but we're going to be challenging and encouraging to move and not just sit in the fuse. So consider running a church campaign. So as I say here, and to do that by creatively communicating the widening circle of people. Um, then the last thing I would say is this. Take the next step. You've heard a lot of stuff for the last couple of days and, you know, the kind of analogy maybe of a fire hydrant, some people say, you know, the, the water coming out of the fire hydrant and you've heard a lot of stuff for the last few days but the key thing is to take the next step, to do something, not just to leave here and do nothing. Take the next step. Um, a couple of years, we were in the midst of this capital campaign to build a brand new church, and we've had to raise a lot of money, and it's been overwhelming at times, and a lot of times in prayer, just feeling like, God needs your help. I don't know how we're going to get there. And we're in a pretty good place now where we're going we're gonna to get where we need to go. But there's times we just didn't know. And kind of felt the burden of that. And so I remember one time I was praying and I was reading through the book of Exodus. And I was, it just was on my heart and on my mind about how are we going to get there? How are we going to get the necessary funds we need to build this new church? And so I'm feeling all this and I'm reading through Exodus and I read this verse from Exodus 4.13. It says this, and Moses said, all right, so just to give you the context to remind you where this is, this is after the 10th plague, and this is after, you know, the Pharaoh has sent them out, and the people of Israel are up against the Red Sea, they have the Red Sea to their front, and the Egyptian army breathing down their neck to the back. And Moses said this to the people, Fear not, stand firm, and see the salvation of the Lord, which he will work for you today. <clears throat> and I'm feeling just very nervous about, about this, this campaign. I'm like, oh, okay, God, that's great. I'm like writing that down. All I got to do is stand firm, and I will see the sal your salvation, which you're going to work out. This is great, God. Thank you. And I, and I just like paused on that verse. And it's a good thing I didn't like put my Bible away or put the Bible app away because the next verse says this. God says this. Then the Lord said to Moses, Why do you cry out to me? Tell the people of Israel to go forward. Lift up your rod and stretch out your hand over the sea and divide it, that the sons of Israel may go on dry ground through the sea. God says to Moses, I don't want you to stand firm. That's your opinion. That's what you're thinking. No, I want you to move. I want you to take the next step. I want you to move forward. And when you move forward, when you act... Then I'll split the sea. But I'm not splitting the sea till you move. Again, we want God to remove the obstacles, and then we'll go forward. God says, no, you move forward, and then I'll remove the obstacles. That's the way faith works, right? We can't see it yet. We have to move forward in faith. 
before God will clear the obstacles out of the way. So, take the next step. And again, it's so urgent we do this because if we don't, the next generation is not going to know God. It's slipping away, it's slipping away from us. That the, 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 the next generation will not know God if we do not act in faith and take the next step. A little while ago, Father Michael and I had, Father Michael and I had um, lunch with this couple. And um, so we're having lunch with him and um, she, they were, she, he was, uh, they were, they were getting married and she had two kids, two girls, two young daughters right around the same age as my daughter. And she was talking about how she had stopped going to church. And she had stopped going to church because she described her church experience as a kid as soul crushing. She called it a soul crushing experience. Wow. But she'd come to Nativity and liked it. And she, the only reason she had come to Nativity was because uh, her fiancé had come to Nativity and he loved Nativity. He's like, please give it a try. And she came and she loved it. And at that point in the story, at that point when we met them, the time we had lunch, she's like, you know, we haven't brought my daughters to church yet. But I'm bringing them pretty soon. And I remember not too long after that, um, being at church, and we have this thing, again, we have our thing called time travelers, and I see that this couple and, and this, these two girls are there at church, um, and then we, we bring the kids back in from time travelers after the children's liturgy word, and I see the girls come running to their mother, and she gives them a big hug, and there's smiles on their faces, and I just thought, thank you, God. Thank you, God, to get to be a part of this church. Thank you, God, that these two young girls, if it wasn't for Nativity, if it wasn't for this parish, if it wasn't for God, what you were doing to this parish, they wouldn't know you. Thank God that we we had taken some steps to reach out to people in our community who didn't know you and to build children's programs that invest in the next generation. Take the next step. What do you need to do? Faith is moving forward despite not knowing what's going to happen. Take the next step. Fire the person. Hire the person. Make the phone call. Send the email. Stop doing that program you know it does not work and does not make disciples and is burning you out. Start the new thing you know God is putting on your heart. Take the next step. Take the next step. We've got some time for some questions. If you've got any questions, the microphones are somewhere. So, if you've got any questions. You've mentioned that in your adult formation is focused on small group. Um, small group can have a dynamic of, um, of faith sharing. That's one component. Or uh, the other component is, is it very catechetically oriented, do you have a catechist in each small group, so to speak? Do you you understand why I'm trying to draw a differentiation between the expert in the room versus is it small group in the sense of sharing their journey of faith? Or is it both? So so how do we make sure our small group leaders are kind of competent? Is that the... Right. Okay. Right. Um, You know, a lot of, I guess one of it is, I think with small groups is that the curriculum carries a long way, so we produce our own curriculum. Um, again, we have that available through, through our, our association. And so a lot of times, it starts there. So we know we're like, getting everybody on the same page. But a lot from that, you know, we're, we're asking our small group leaders really to start out just as facilitators. Can you, can you open, you know, lead the group, make sure it gets together and meet? And then we want to kind of build them up over time. Jackie Guider is our small groups person. is constantly doing trainings and investing in them. But... We, we keep the bar kind of low on that because we already know we provide the content, which is giving people the kind of foundation. And then the, the main thing about small groups, too, for us is, at first and foremost, is relationships. That 
Um, if, people are, if we sell them as things that people are coming to to grow as followers of Christ, then they'll, they'll move in the right direction. And there's a little bit of training, but again, we're not asking people to, to be, you know, know the Bible backwards and forwards or, or know, they just, can you facilitate, do you love God, are you trying to grow closer to God, and we'll allow the things from there to, to take over. Okay, so when you first began, um, I was wondering, because you were talking about a consumer-type um, situation, then you changed to another type of consumer, in my opinion, and you said you worked on the weekend, um, that's where your focus is at, then during the week, do you have activities, you're talking about small groups, do they meet at specific times, do those, how does the rest of the week look besides just the weekend? Yeah, so two things. I guess one you said about the, you're creating new consumers. Was that your question? Yeah. We're always going to have consumers in our church. That's okay. And, and again, people are just coming for themselves. The problem is not... Healthy <coughs> churches are like families. And a family always has consumers because they have babies. When you have a baby in the family, the baby consumes. Y you know that. That's natural. What you want to do is grow that baby out of a consumer into a contributor in the life of the family. Eventually, as that child grows to an adult, they're going to have children. And you're reintroducing consumers all over again. That's the organic flow of a healthy parish. Our newcomers and unchurched people are consumers. We admit that. And our weekend exercise is in part a consumer exercise. But it's about growing people out of that consumer posture into a contributing posture. Yeah, that's good. Well said. <laughs> um, the, the other part, when it comes to um, the small groups thing, what we're saying about that is the weekend is the engine. The reason people get into small groups is to become the church on Sunday and they hear a, a, a relevant message for their lives. And as Father Michael likes to say, on Sundays I talk at you, on, through, the week, through the small groups you get to talk back and have and to process these things and, and talk about that. And so the small groups do happen during the week. Um, and they can happen at, for adult small groups, they can happen at any time, whenever fits a group's schedule. So uh, we have morning, evenings, you know, sun, you know, basically Sunday through Saturday. Not sure there's a lot of Saturday groups, but any day during the week. Um, we like to say that the small groups are where the conversation continues. So on Sunday, in my homily, I am getting the conversation started. That's pretty much my only goal. I have no illusions about the effectiveness of my homilies. You know, by Tuesday, most of the people in the pews would never remember what I said. By Wednesday, I don't remember what I said. But if the small group is, is getting a message that's relevant and consistent with the message that I've given, the conversation then expands to include the parishioners and it continues. And that's the mark of success we're aiming at with our weekly message, which is what we're referring to the whole package. Right. So when, right, we talk about how conversation and conversion are from the same root word that conversion has from the, that conversion comes from that conversation. As long as we keep that conversation going, better chance of conversion. We'll give it over to the bishop. I, guess. I, I draw people up to the microphone. Please help me thank these two amazing presenters. Thank you for being with us, Father Michael and Tom.